Welcome, Investigator. Evil is on the rise. Crime is escalating. Our mission is to eliminate the crime by exposing evil, examine why it manifests, and highlight the brave souls that confront it every day. Join us as we work together to bring justice to every victim. Welcome to All Things Crime. Here's your host, Jared Bradley. Hey guys, it's Jared. It's part three of my discussion with Ann Bremner and Evan Berrialt about the Josh and Susan Powell case. Enjoy. Well, but when you say domestic violence, I think most people, they, they look at physical violence. So d- describe some of the other domestic violence that you're talking about. Well, as, as Ann mentioned earlier, so financial, for example. So controlling finances where you're simply indicating, okay, you can use this card at this time. You, you can't spend on this. You can't spend on this. I'm going to control the finances. So I have control over that. Just the emotional, right? Calling someone names, putting them down, uh, telling them how to dress, telling them how to behave. Uh, those are other non-physical forms of domestic violence. And those oftentimes end up being the precursors to what does end up becoming physical domestic violence. So there, there are multiple levels of domestic violence and it doesn't have to be physical. And that's, you know, that was actually kind of a, a, a big issue in our case against the state is that the state trains all of its mm-hmm. personnel yes. and has this massive handbook on domestic violence. And it informs its personnel that there does not have to be a, a hitting act, a kicking act, a physical act of violence, but there's other forms. And those were all existent here in the Josh Powell, Susan Powell case. And yet the state completely ignored those things. Uh, you know, even when, when Ann, when actually, Jared, you made a point about, you know, violence towards women, violence towards mothers. And even the attorney general during the, the shelter care hearing, which is when the boys were pulled out of Stephen Powell's home, recognized, and he says to the court, he goes, we don't buy Josh Powell's story about going camping in the middle of the night. And he goes, this is the worst form of domestic violence that you could ever perpetrate on a child is harming their mother. So the state started its case on dependency, recognizing that Josh Powell very likely killed his wife. It's the worst form of domestic violence. And yet they continue to give Josh everything he wanted in that case, which ultimately allowed him to kill those two boys. Well, so just to kind of keep moving with this, um, and, and the domestic violence, uh, you know, helping people understand, um, when you, when you manipulate the spouse or ex-spouse, you know, if you're, if you're divorced through the children, to me, that that's almost kind of the same thing. Is am I, am I correct in that? I mean, certainly, I mean, as far as is manipulating the children to have certain beliefs, I mean, Josh Powell brainwashed, uh, the boys. I mean, that is, that is evidenced by the psychological assessments done of the boys. I mean, there's documentation that literally reads these boys are brainwashed. And so you if, certainly if you have a scenario where one parent uh, makes comments about another parent to these children, uh, what their mother's like or what their father's like or how they should act towards them. Yes, that is certainly a form of domestic violence, not only towards the other parent, but more importantly, towards the children as well. Yeah. Anything to add, Ann? No, I mean, I agree. And, and we presented in the case 
basically a profile of what you would see in someone where it's predictable that they're going to do these, you know, heinous acts. And it's in addition to what Evan talked about, you know, with these case studies characteristics. When you look at someone like Josh Powell, he's a classic, you know, that he's killing a family pet in front of his sister, making her touch the blood, you know, trying to hang himself, you know, with with a rope. He had the rope marks on his neck, the knife on his mom when she said, asked him to do the dishes, you know, molesting his little sister and going on and on. So, you know, this is a guy that, that was well on his path, you know, to ruin. And, and then once he became involved with Susan, part of that domestic violence also was he lets his dad send her pornography, um, photograph her, um, basically morph pictures to simulate that she's having some sexual contact with the dad you know, et cetera. So that's just even another piece. So there's so many layers to look for in these domestic violence cases. And like she said, her most famous quote, if something happens to me, she knew. Well, I, I'm sure as she was in, in this relationship and, and her father-in-law starts sending her weird, weird stuff. And mm -hmm. the husband didn't, uh, right. I obviously didn't defend her. I, I, I don't know what exactly happened, but did not. To me, that's just out of it. Are, are you kidding me? Anybody sends my my wife anything, it's like it's on. Right. <laughs> and I, I think I think most most relationships right. would be that way. And yet this one's the exact opposite. Right. And, and that was something that was looked at by the state, too, is that, you know, that he didn't seem to protest, you know, that his dad was doing this. For years and you know that's why they moved to utah that's why josh and susan moved from washington state because they had lived with stephen as newlyweds um and they moved to utah because she wanted to get away from the creepy father-in-law yeah it, it, mm -hmm. it, you know to add to that jared too you know we chuck cox went and obtained uh stephen powell's divorce file which was actually a big part of our case and it evidenced that, that josh grew up in a home riddled with domestic violence and, you know, I think his, his father exhibited coercive control right. over Josh. Mm -hmm. And, you know, one of the things that you look at with, with familicide too, is also this idea of this loss of masculinity. And I'm sure for Josh, knowing that his father had this control over him and knowing that he couldn't do anything about the comments his father was making about his wife, the fact that he was taking pictures of her, et cetera, that, that probably rubbed Josh the wrong way. And ultimately he, he took it mm -hmm. out on Susan instead of addressing those issues with his father. But, you know, even after, once he moved into his father's home, after Susan went, went missing, you know, I think Stephen just continued to kind of control Josh a little bit. And that is something that had developed over Josh's whole life from when he was mm -hmm. a child. Stephen had amazing control over this family. And I, and I really think a lot of this, as far as what happened with Josh and Susan, those boys started with Stephen Powell. You know, there was a there was a quote in the Tacoma News Tribune that said, "Never has so much evil been visited on one family by one father, and that's well, Stephen Powell." Do you think he was one of the primary reasons they that he that Josh up and moved two weeks after Susan went missing? Yes. And Michael was helping Josh. We know that. And of course, you were wonderful to help, you know, and, and 
looking at the, his Taurus, you know, which potentially was involved in transporting Susan's body. But they, they were all, you know, calling, texting each other, you know, all of it. Um, and like Evan said, Stephen had the ultimate control over all of his family. And, and so that's exactly why Josh moved back. In with yeah, family. that um, it, the, the, the time frame of it was really interesting because you, you mentioned Michael and the Taurus and kind of um, we found out about that afterwards, you know, in fact, um, quite a bit afterwards, you know, once once we uh, once we sell an MVAC system to a police agency, especially if it's an active case, you know, they they typically don't put us in the loop. But uh-huh. we we found that um, Sorensen Forensics had had helped with that case. And, you know, it's unfortunate that it, it took so long to find the Taurus, um, even though it was supposed to be crushed, in my understanding, at least, and help me out if I miss anything. But yeah, it was supposed to be crushed. It, it was. It was sitting out in the That's Oregon right. deserts for a year and a half. And then once they finally uh, recovered it and, and tried to use the MVAC on it, it was... Um, I remember getting phone calls and they were kind of throwing little hints about, hey, you know, if you had a really big surface area, how would you process it with the, with the MVAC? And so we were trying to kind of help them through it. But I, I think it's, number one, because of the temperatures uh, and the, the, the time that it was that it took to actually recover the, mm-hmm. the Taurus. But also, um, we didn't have really refined methods back then. We were just starting in forensics. And, you know, in 2010, we were still in an 11 time frame. And I, I, I'm i sorry, I've missed what day exactly. I know it was in December, but what day did uh, Susan go missing? What year, though? 2009. Okay, so 2009. Nine. So, 2009. yeah, uh, it was barely even being tested in front the with a forensics application back then and so we we really didn't uh, have a whole lot of advice to give any of the agencies or crime labs on how to use it and so maybe i'm I'm sure it was probably used correctly but um at the same time you know it's sad that we i i think if we had another crack at it based on our our experience now we'd we'd probably do a little better but anyway that you did you did uh, that was awesome what you did. And, you know, and Michael, you know, I took his deposition uh, for a full day. Um, and shortly after that, he, you know, he killed himself. He jumped off a parking garage structure in Minneapolis. We know, we know that that was, there's involvement, right? And the fact that what you did, and it's been reported that there was some positive um, indication of um, by cadaver dog. Um, at least that was reported. So, Obviously, he mm-hmm. knew the walls were closing in on him and took his own life, right? And so that helps us with clues as to what happened to Susan. And he didn't want that car to be found or analyzed by you. Remember, he thought it went for scrap. And so he looked on his satellite photography and saw that it wasn't scrapped. And he was astonished because it was a good car that he wanted scrapped. And that was for good. Yeah, reason. that was, uh, that was a really interesting time for us. And it, you know, if you, <laughs> I mean, we were, like yeah. I said, um, so my dad that invented the MVAC, uh, actually came down with a glioblastoma mm-hmm. in 2009. And so oh, lots no. of, lots of crazy things were happening with MVAC systems in 2009. And, you know, mm-hmm. then we're, we're trying to field, uh, 
questions, you know, about potential use in the forensics application. We're focused on food safety and uh, at the same time dealing with um, the founder, you know, having a brain tumor. So, yeah, it was a it was a weird time. And I and I hope that we did it justice. But, uh, you know, more, more importantly, I, I think that was you just did. one small uh, area where, uh, yeah, you know, looking at it in hindsight, it, it, it could have been a major factor. But I think just just focusing again on Josh and how bizarre his actions were. Um, and and I, it's weird to me that somebody other than Susan, you know, d- didn't intervene and maybe they did. But, you know, how is it that somebody outside of the family didn't see some weird things going on? Jared, your, your comment about Josh being being odd, I think made it difficult for people to interact with him. Uh, you know, I look at the, the case with the state and he is, he is so odd. He is so different. And even in his communications with social workers, I think they, he was just creepy. I mean, that's kind of the best way to put it. He was, he was a rather creepy guy and no one wanted to deal with him. So even when I look at how the state handled this, the social workers were like, I don't want to deal with this guy. I don't want to communicate with this guy. He emails all the time. He's finicky. Let's just move on. Let's push this case through and get this done. And you see it in some of the emails and comments that were going on between Josh and social workers and other social workers. So instead of following their protocols, they were hey, let's just reunite this guy with his kids so we can get it off our plate. I don't want to deal with him. He rubs me the wrong way. He makes me uncomfortable. Uh, You know, Chuck Cox had indicated that he talked to one of the social workers who had, after a visit, and she said that she was sitting in a McDonald's with him. And in her mind right then, she was going, I'm sitting across from a murderer. And yet Mm. you, you have these visits at his home, which violated all their protocols is because Nobody wanted to deal with it. And my, my guess is Josh probably gave folks that similar vibe when he was in Utah, as far as Susan's friends and others. And, you know, they didn't want to confront him. They didn't want to say anything to him. And that's a, you know, a difficult part in some of these domestic violence cases is for friends. Sometimes it is difficult to step over that line, step over that boundary and provide that help because you don't want to feel like you're invading your friend's space. Um, But if you are in a situation where you see that it's gotten to a certain level, that's the best thing you can do for your friend is to, and and I'm not saying confront the perpetrator, but certainly talk to them and help them get some resources instead of sitting back and just hoping things work out. Well, and I also think, uh, again, kind of moving back to my, my military days, there's a, everybody kind of goes through this training of uh, an ambush. And to me, I, I'm I'm thinking as you were describing uh, even even Josh's interaction with the social workers that it, to me it, it was like he, was he actually trying to manipulate uh, the social workers as well and thousand, uh, it th- kind of sounds like thousand, it was a thousand but, percent he was yeah he was completely trying to manipulate them as he was but trying to manipulate everyone else it's it's one of those things where in military um, talk uh, if you're in the kill zone. And, you know, they call that when an ambush is kicked off and you're literally in the kill zone, the only thing you can do is charge. I mean, you, you can't retreat. You can't hide. 
And so the only thing you have left is, is to, to get aggressive and charge. And that's one of the things where I, I'm, I'm wondering if there's some way or, or if there's some resources out there that uh, when, when women don't recognize that they're in the, you know, the real danger zone of this kind of a dom domestic violence and manipulation type of a, of an atmosphere. And, um, you know, hopefully they're, they're getting more and more, uh, especially with the internet, you know, we have the world at our fingertips, right? Uh, hopefully more and more women, especially are, are learning about these red flags that you guys are describing. And it's just one of those where, again, to me, out of all the crimes that I have, you know, seen over the past 10, 12 years, you know, being involved in forensics, especially uh, to me, the most damaging to society is violence against women and kids. Mm -hmm. And uh, it's just, and, and it doesn't matter if it's a sexual assault or, you know, just uh, abuse like what you're, you're describing. And, but either way, the, the long-term damage to me, like a, a, a rape or uh, domestic violence against children, you know, this kind of manipulation to the, the long-term effects to me is, is bigger and more damaging than even a homicide because right. it's ongoing mm -hmm. and generational from what you guys are describing. You know, well, if, there, were, there was one more generation and that was Steven's parents. He said that he was a victim of parental kidnapping. So there, there you have it. Well, so it just goes back uh, mm -hmm. uh, for multiple generations, and that's uh, mm -hmm. that's scary. So, well, anything else about this this case and and Josh in particular that you guys want to add? I just want to add that we're very grateful to everyone in Utah who's supported the Cox family since the very beginning. I mean, I, I've been in Seattle all my career, but every time I went to Utah in this case. You know, I felt like I was just in the arms of family, of people that really, in the press and citizens and everybody else that really supported the, the family. So we really appreciate that. And of course, your work, we appreciate immensely. And then, and finally, I would just say that we need to find Susan. Um, and if anybody knows anything or can help us in any way, we would surely appreciate it because she needs to come home. Uh, and be with her children, Charlie and Braden, uh, at peace and at last. Are there any particular websites or, or places you would recommend people go? Well, there's still an active uh, at the West Valley City Police, a link that we can send to you for your listeners and viewers. And our investigator, Rosemary Winquist, is also somebody that takes tips. She was with us and presented uh, on some of the leads and searches uh, for Susan. And so I can send that to you as well to share, but those would be the main ones. But 35,000 pages of police reports, you know, there's, she's somewhere out there. And so we hope that, that everyone can help us find Susan and the support um, is, is so appreciated um, by all of us, including our clients. Yeah, Evan? Well, no, I, I would actually just say thanks to you, Jared, for, you know, continuing to talk about this story and get this information mm -hmm. out there. I mean, having folks like you that have podcasts and have viewers and listeners that may have something uh, to add. They may have information that we haven't seen before that may help find Susan or may help find other victims of violence. I mean, I think it's really important, as you mentioned, a, a community like CrimeCon, these are people that really are mm -hmm. have kind of an investigative nature 
And sometimes maybe you, you go beyond your regular law enforcement avenues for investigation and somebody may have a tip or they may have seen something. And if we can do anything we can to get that information out there, because I, I can tell you right now, Chuck and Judy Cox are, are not going to stop until they find their daughter. Uh, and, and myself, Ted, others on our trial team are not going to stop until we get justice for those boys. Um, so I, I really appreciate you having us on here and giving us the opportunity to speak further about this case. And I second oh, that second that emotion, Jared. I really appreciate. We both really appreciate your having us on and and showcasing this case. Oh, it's it's absolutely my pleasure. And I'll tell you the the whole reason for uh, all things crime is is not just to uh, talk about cases in particular. And obviously, Susan's case. Uh, has to stay in the limelight, and even even though it's been over a decade, it's still one of those that people can learn from her case, and and mm -hmm. that's that's really what the focus of this podcast is about is is the process that you guys go through, and to me, d describing some of the red flags so that somebody in the future that may be listening to this or watching this this on uh, you know YouTube or Rumble and and say, oh my, you know. I, I, I'm experiencing some of those red flags and right. maybe they're just, um, you know, somebody under a lot of stress, but then on the other hand, uh, if they have any kind of a remote background, even close to what Josh Powell had, you know, especially with his father and, and grandparents mm -hmm. that, uh, you know, hopefully they can avoid it and, and get out of those kind of situations and, um, mm -hmm. or, or help the person get help. And to me, that's, uh, uh, again, what, what's the saying that it's uh, all all the evil has to do to succeed is have uh, good men and women not not act or not do anything. And right. I think in this case, um, talking about it, getting the information out there, you know, being able to uh, interview guys like you that that you have such an immense amount of knowledge and and expertise in this that it, it's it would just be a shame for it to to not get out there more. So. I, I can't tell you how much I appreciate you guys coming on. And, and I know uh, even with the technical difficulties, <laughs> we can, it's um, it, it's absolutely worth it. And so uh, believe me, I'm going to be, um, I'm gonna, like a, I was telling Evan earlier, I'm going to be on that plane to Australia editing this thing. And um, yeah, I, I want to get these episodes out as quick as I possibly can, just because it, this has been a fascinating and fantastic conversation. So Thank you again for coming on. And thank, um, you. thank you. If you guys uh, ever run into anything else, I'd, I'd love to have you on again. We'd love, Thanks we'd so love much to for come having back. Us. Yeah. We would, indeed. Awesome. Hey, appreciate it. You guys have a great week. You too. Thank you. Thanks for joining us. Your attention today brings us one step closer to exposing and eliminating the evil that brings crime to our communities. Hit subscribe and share this episode. Together, we will bring justice to every victim.